Danny wasn't wrong, uh, to be sure. Singing and the songs our lives sing, even when our mouths may be closed, are often the most compelling testimony to who we are individually and who we are collectively as the body of Christ. As we gather today, I invite you to lean in and come close. I may look a little distracted. It's because I'm I'm sorting through a lot of my own feelings. Uh, Today, had received a a text from Barry Payne. You know, she and Amelia were up at Brevard um, helping Amelia get oriented. And uh, Barry texted me on the road, on the run. Uh, Her father suffered a massive heart attack this morning and died. And she wanted you to know that. But more than knowing, what, what do we do? As the psalmist asked, when, when our foundations are shaken, what will the righteous do? I look out here and I see so many of you who have been in that place. <clears throat> You've experienced the crumbling foundations, the buttresses you leaned upon uh, no longer bear the weight or the freight. And our sister Barry uh, is in that place today, but she is not alone. I know many of you are carrying your own burdens as well. Some long-standing burdens, some that are brand new. We carry them together, and that is the gift of church. We pray for one another not as a superficial way to cut off a conversation or deeper engagement of lives, but because it is the life breath of the church. Won't you pray with me? Almighty God, for the gift of this day, we do give you our thanks for the sun that shines, for uh, the anticipation, the expectation that we have all brought to this time, trusting in your promise that you will meet us here. That as the one who has called us out of the ordinariness of our lives and has equipped us through Jesus Christ to live lives that are being transformed by your Holy Spirit out in the world, to show in our words and in our works who you truly are. For all these things, we give you thanks. We confess that it is so hard to live up to that calling, that we are often distracted by our own self-interest, our own poor judgment, our sin, our self-centeredness, and in so many ways we have chosen to walk a path of our own making instead of looking to you who is the way and the truth and the life. Call us again alongside you by the grace of your forgiveness, by the love that can only come from one who gave fully and freely on a cross for us all. We hold before you ourselves and we hold before you today the needs of so many of whom we are aware who are hospitalized, who are distant from us in rehab, who are homebound, who are confined in places of incarceration or who are imprisoned by their own grief. We hold before you our sister Barry and her mother and Amelia 
and all those who are undergoing the, the tsunami of shock and pain that inevitably comes at such times. We gather together today as your body, trusting that your wisdom in calling us together strengthens us all for the fights and for the struggles that we inevitably endure. And that even when we are isolated, we are never, ever alone. You have given us one another, and even more, you have given us yourself. So open our hearts and our minds today to your very presence that we might experience in a way we can understand your companionship and your friendship and your love in this journey of life. We give you thanks for honoring the covenant that you have made and for giving us the one who makes it, our Lord Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. I didn't stage out my, uh, my, my various support structures, including my notes. They were down on the, on the pew. So I need them. As we pivot into this time, uh, we do it with a lot of celebration. Janelle's not here today. She's been invited to preach uh, as a minister. I did, no, don't celebrate. She's not here. I'm getting to the celebration point. Uh, she's preaching because she's equipped and gifted to do just that. Um, she's bringing the light to the Presbyterians today in Raleigh. Uh, Mackenzie's not here today, also a gifted minister whose gifts we have seen on full display. She's preaching at Hope Valley Baptist Church this morning. And so in that good company, I stand before you today to open the scriptures and to listen to how God's spirit will speak through these words. Today, we're going to the very beginning of the Psalter, Psalm 1. And as we read this psalm today, I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version because it, it makes some translation choices, I think, that help us along in our reflection. So hear these words. The great hymn book of Israel, the great worship book of old. From the Bible that Jesus read, these words that start it all. Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path that sinners tread or sit in the seat of scoffers, but their delight is in the law of the Lord. And on the Lord's law they meditate day and night. They are like trees planted by streams of water which yield their fruit in its season and their leaves do not wither. In all that they do, they prosper. The wicked are not so. They are like chaff, and, and the wind drives them away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. May God bless the reading and the hearing 
these words today. Happy are those. That's the very first word of the very first psalm, happy. And boy, don't we want happy in our lives. Many books have been sold promising some sort of key or method to happiness. There is in social sciences an an emerging body of study now called happiness studies, an interdisciplinary approach. There's even a journal of happiness studies you might want to subscribe if you're looking for a bit of happiness. I actually try to read some of the articles in it. Um, Actually, I would not recommend you subscribe unless you're a technical specialist in one of these fields. But what they're Uh, these articles want to unpack in one way or another is how people think about their happiness in relation to all sorts of variables in their lives, whether it's their income level or their relationships or their health, their career, so on. And it's an important and interesting approach, I think, maybe to understand ourselves and how we think what we think and maybe why we believe what we believe about happiness. But that is not the interest of the psalm. The Psalms approach the question of happiness from a very different perspective because in the Psalms, the primary subject is not the human being at all, but instead in the Psalms, the primary subject is God. And so happiness is not first understood in any way that we could understand. It's not primarily about what human beings feel or what they desire or even what humans accomplish. Despite what our society tells us, happiness is not about doing what you want to do or finding that thing that you personally might take deepest satisfaction or find most fulfilling. And yet, we cannot deny that word happy begins the psalm that we read today, the psalm that's at the very beginning of this whole collection of worship and prayer songs. And that word that's translated happy, if you're reading it in the NIV, it's translated blessed. It'll occur over 20 more times throughout the Psalms. And so one commentator has said that the Psalms, in many ways, is sort of an extended commentary on happiness, on that one word. And this very first round of reflection to get us into that place of thinking about happiness, biblically speaking, in this hymnal talks about our ethics and our lifestyle and our decisions. And so the, the tip is given to us at the very beginning. Before we bother praying, before we gather here and even begin worshiping, our goal as Christians and as a community of Christians is not first accomplishing some sort of perfect piety of getting all of our words just right, to getting all of our notes precisely on pitch. And you understand what I mean when I say that. Um, It's not about getting the ritual down just pat. The goal is very different than that. That the formalities that we might experience that gather us together in a time like this or that order our lives as the church are not the goal. The goal is a changed life. And the goal is a transformed community. And so, even from the beginning, we can hear a little more deeply uh, than the black and white call that says, make good decisions, don't make bad decisions. 
there's something deeper at work here from the very beginning as we begin to reflect on what it means to worship, what it means to pray, what it means to participate in a church at all, it is acknowledging not only, yes, there are good decisions and there are bad decisions. There are decisions that take us toward what God wants and there are decisions that take us away from God wants. It's not that God is simply there like a hall monitor sort of checking off, well, you got 50 good decisions and one bad decision today. God wants to get into your life into that place where the decisions are made. Can you hear the difference? That it's not about perfect performance, but instead inviting God into that place where we learn to make our decisions and allowing God to go to work and transform the seat of our lives. And we know that our lives are often sort of the accumulation of a thousand little decisions and the occasional big decision. And as we read the psalm today, it does frame it for us. Would we rather walk in the counsel of the, of the wicked or would we rather delight in the law of the Lord? Well, when you frame it that way, it doesn't seem like much of a decision of all, at all, does it? Do you want to choose evil and destruction? Do I want to jump off a cliff as Jesus was challenged to do by Satan? Or would I rather sit down to a welcoming dinner with friends that I love? Will I choose to ruin my life or will I choose to fulfill my destiny? When you frame it that way, of course you want to lean into the good. But it's not that simple. And we know life is not that simple. We certainly aren't born with enough horse sense to know the way we should go. And so the psalm gives us that second hint to what happiness might be in Scripture. And it is this word that's translated law. And traditionally it's been translated law, but that's an awfully confining word. The Hebrew word here is Torah. And so sometimes when people only view it as law, they can only interpret this through the lens of an excessive sort of legalism or retribution. But Torah doesn't mean law. Torah means teaching. It means instruction. In the broadest sense, in its context, Torah means God's will, God's way, God's word to us. And so for Psalm 1, Happiness isn't simply a mechanical process of, of following a set of rules devotedly, and if you do it all right, then you will be rewarded. Instead, happiness is found in this relational moment, a dynamic process that requires a constant meditation, day and night, says the Scripture, upon God's will to discern what God would have us to do and who God would have us to be in every situation in our life. Later on, when Jesus would summarize the Torah, he also said that happiness would derive in all times and in all places from loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. When he preached the Beatitudes in his Sermon on the Mount, Blessed, happy, lucky are you, he said, even in the hard times, because you're learning something new about God's all-embracing, 
all-encompassing love of your life. You're happy as you experience more and more of God. That's the root of our happiness. More of that, please. I think all of us might say that. But choosing, of course, and that is where our lives really do rest. The choices that we make. Why do we find our ears so tickled and drawn to the words of wickedness, to use the words of Psalm 1? Why is that? Usually it's not because we are instinctively drawn to evil, like really bad evil, and, and temptation doesn't come to us in, in, in a pitchfork and horns on our shoulder. Instead, it comes to us reflecting enough of the goodness of God for us to be deceived in believing that what we are doing is of God. But then we find that the happiness that's promised in making that choice is empty. And it doesn't fill us. So we seek after wealth, or we might seek after pleasure, or we might seek after a whole lot of leisure. None of those in and of themselves are evil but we do miss out on the depth of what God calls us to. Things like generosity or prayer, the pleasure of service, the connection of worship, the, the leisure that comes from Sabbath rest and silence in the presence of God. You remember when Danny preached a couple of months ago and he talked about his life in that monastic community where they rigorously divided up their day kind of into thirds that was spent one-third in prayer and worship, one-third at work, kind of doing work in the community, and one-third lollygagging, holy lollygagging in Sabbath rest. And maybe I wasn't the only one who leaned forward and said, yes, please, that sounds like a life worth living. Of course, we integrate all of those into our lives too, but what do we find? It's all out of balance, probably excessive work, too little prayer, definitely too little rest or maybe then we try and compensate and we go all in on rest and our work and our prayer fails or maybe we we make a new commitment we try to pray all the time but then we realize we just haven't built the capacity to do it this more disciplined and methodical approach of an entire life day and night that's spent on the holy things of god is something that attracts me but what if we miss out? If we make the choice for that to which God has called us, there is that voice that suggests we might be missing out. Robert Frost captured it just as well as anybody. Two roads, di two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry that I could not travel both. We think we can travel both. Sometimes we try and travel four roads, six roads, eight roads. We don't want to miss a thing. I'll take them all, but we can't divide our lives into four or eight or any more. You wind up splintered. You wind up divided. You wind up without any focus at all. And that road to which God is calling us, a road less traveled, in which our delight is in the instruction, in the relational introduction to God's own word, to God's own life. It's not boring. It's not restrictive. Instead, it is the source of a real joy. 
Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Sometimes as we pursue happiness, we can be deflected from the happy life with God. So where are we going to learn this? And most broadly, we say we learn it in church. We learn it as Christians. We learn at being a part of communities that share that commitment to live a transformed life. How do we connect our lives to the great life that is God? Well, we have to be disciplined, just like that community Danny told us about. We have to block out time for things like prayer. We have to make the effort to be connected to worship, whether it's in person, whether it's virtually. We become daily students of Scripture and students of the lives of those who have lived faithfully before us. But even more than that, Psalm 1 tells us that on God's law, the Blessed One meditates day and night. Where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in Qumran, uh, we found in the writings that they actually devised a system where at least one member of the community would be studying Scripture every minute of the day. Some would get the night shift, some would get the day shift. Maybe we don't have to be that legalistic about it, especially when we remember that we have work, we have commuting to do, we have jobs to perform, we have families to tend to, we have all of these things that also occupy important places in our lives. So how can meditating on the law of the Lord become an ongoing, streaming, ever-present reality in our lives? Well, it begins by anchoring ourselves and actually spending time in Scripture, of carving out that time for devotion and for prayer. And then, you know, I may not be the only one who talks to myself. You carry that with you. And you continue to turn over intellectually and risk in front of others living what it calls out of you out loud. And we find that God is a constant companion as we continue to ruminate and remember, as we continue to reflect and respond to God's word out in the world. Ultimately, what we might find is that God's ongoing presence in word and even more in that way that defies our words begins to plug those nagging holes of loneliness that we find. So we study the scripture, but even more, we move from that place of knowing about God to knowing God by living like God out in the world. I was struck when I was in, uh, in my first little country church, and we had a, a member of the church who was a person of great means, a, a very wealthy uh, contractor who um, joined our church, and <laughs> he said, don't ever put me on the finance committee, he told me when he joined. He said, I'm a junkyard dog in the, in the boardroom, and I would be really unpleasant to work with in this capacity said, if the church ever needs anything, you let me know, and we'll try and uh, figure out how to supply that. But what I really want to do is cook chickens. He had a big cooker, like everybody down east did, and he, he made great chickens. But he was also uh, invited to be the chair of a fundraising uh, task force, a development group, 
that was building a hospice house in Johnston County. And I remember sitting with him one day, and he was showing me the list of all his targets, the big, kind of the big donor spenders, some of the municipalities, and some of the people means they kind of know each other and can talk to each other differently. And, and I told him, I said, I th you know, I think everyone's really passionate about this project. And he looked at me, he said, I will judge their passion by the number of zeros in their check. I, I, I never was taught to think that way, partly because I'm not a person of means like that, and two, I'd always been taught that, oh, you know, just get along, go along, you do your thing. But at some point, our lives have to show forth what we say we believe. And it's not enough to say, I believe in that project. You've got to put your material self there. That was Derwood's point. And that's the spiritual point. It's not enough to have all of the words perfectly crafted to articulate an eloquent exposition about the nature of Christ or what Christ did on the cross or have the perfect formula for what it means to be the church if you're not living it out. Your life must show those things you say you believe. And so of all things, to demonstrate this point, Psalm 1 gives us the image of a tree. A tree's not always a very active participant in our lives. They don't uh, move through uh, the world at a great pace. They often grow very slowly, but awfully persistently. Have you ever seen one of those little sprouts come up kind of between a crack in concrete? Yeah, I see some of you sort of lamenting that. You probably, it's probably your sidewalk. Who wins that battle in the long run? The tree. Every single time. Because as it grows up, it also grows deep and it expands, and it begins to take up more and more space in the world. But the great thing about a tree is that a tree can only be a tree. So rather than pretending to be someone you're not, the call of discipleship is to allow God to go to work and tell you who you really are as a beloved creation, as someone filled with potential, as someone who can make a difference in the lives of others, who can show the world and show us a special glimpse of who God is and what God does in the world. And when you can be that person like the tree, living authentically and, and zealously, then you can only be the tree you were made to be. And the fruit you bear will be undeniably the fruit that you were made to bear. Ken Miedema is a, a singer and a songwriter. He's, sometimes I think of him as the Fanny Crosby sort of of this generation because he also uh, is blind. He's still living. He's a musical genius and uh, plays the piano beautifully. And one of his kind of... Uh, things that he does in worship is sometimes he'll take a story or a testimony and he'll write a song on the spot about it. 
And it's really an amazing process. He'll sit and talk to somebody for a minute, and then he'll write a song and sing a song that not only feeds back to this person a story of their life, but somehow manages to edify, kind of like a hymn does, edify everybody in the room. Um, I had a chance to meet Ken at a conference that I was, I was sort of emceeing, and Ken was the music person. And uh, after meeting him, I was so impressed, I got all of his discography and, and started down, this is before Spotify, right? So you had to buy the whole disc. Um, bought all of his compact discs and listened to his music. And there's this one song in there, uh, it's called The Tree Song. And it's this man, so we're walking in different settings. One's kind of by Riverside, one's down the city street, and, and one is making his way kind of in the wintertime. And he's interviewing these trees, asking how on earth, in the cold of winter, how on earth, uh, here by the riverside, how on earth, in the busyness and chaos and concrete of this city, are you managing to grow so tall and do your job of providing space for the birds to land and shade for others? And each time the refrain goes this way, I've got roots growing down to the water. I've got leaves growing up to the sunshine. And the fruit I bear is a sign of the life in me. I'm shade for the hot summer sundown. I'm nest for the birds of the heaven. I'm becoming what the maker of trees has blessed me to be. A strong young tree. Forget the giving tree. This is a very happy tree. Because it's a tree who's discovered who it was meant to be all along and has been given the resources beyond itself to become that. The tree ultimately tells us that our lives are not our own. A tree depends on the sun, and a tree depends on the rain, and a tree depends on the grace and the power of God that can't control but can simply soak up and integrate for nourishment. They depend on the light to shine and the roots go down where it's dark. Finally and fully, as we begin the Psalter and as we continue our life together in worship, just be reminded of this, that our holiness is not a matter of gritting our teeth and just simply setting out diligently to do everything God requires. Yes, sometimes discipleship will lead you to grit your teeth. And what you're going to try is sometimes very hard. But ultimately, we cannot do what God wants of us. We're not capable of living the life God wants for us alone. Ultimately, it's going to require a changed life by a changed spirit brought about as a gift of God. When the Apostle Paul talked about that transformed life, he said, it's a life that would bear fruit of the Spirit. Not the fruit of my good intentions or not the fruit of my new resolve. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's no law against these things. So for us, with our arms stretched upward, with our roots planted deeply we can be the trees God has meant us to be to the glory of God. The only wind that can move us is the Holy Spirit of God. And so 
ultimately it is about a choice and it is a pretty clear one those of you who know me know i kind of steer clear of of black and white absolute conversation like that it's a uh, sometimes it's a help and sometimes it's a real hindrance but the psalm begins with the word happy and it ends with the word death and it presents to us a choice about where we will place our lives it's not about what we can accomplish but how will we posture ourselves in relationship to what God is saying to us today? And if for you, it is toward happiness. That, we're told, is the way of life. A way that is opened up by Jesus Christ. So much so, Jesus at one point said, I am the way. I am that road. And if you've never taken that step to begin following him, and today may be the day to start. There's no magic word. There's no magic formula. It is a matter of opening up that part of yourself that makes the decisions and say, I can't make this one alone. God, I'm yours. Let's see what happens. Amen. was lost but now I'm found I once was lost but now I'm found so far away but I'm home now I once was lost but now I'm found and now my life song sings I once was blind but now I see I once was blind but now I see I don't know how but when he touched me, I once was blind, but now I see. And now my life song sings. And now my life song sings. 
was dead, but now I live. Now my life to you I give. Now my life to you I give. Now my life song sing to Hallelujah, hallelujah, let my life song sing to you. song sing to you. 